Good morning. You already have your Bibles open uh, to First Samuel. Hopefully, um, we'll we'll send out a reminder as as the weeks go on of, of the passage that we'll be in next. That you can actually read ahead. Uh, next week we'll be in chapters eight through twelve. If you want to read through that even a few times this next week, I, I think that will be uh, helpful. Um, <clears throat> Let's open up with our, uh, with our truth statement for today. Um, when God's people neglect his word and rely on worldly wisdom, he will give them over to be dominated by the world and its ways. But when they trust and obey God's word, he will help them overcome the world and to live for his glory. Let me read that again. When God's people neglect God's word, and rely on worldly wisdom, he will give them over to be dominated by the world and its ways. But when they trust and obey God's word, he will help them overcome the world and to live for his glory. The small Hebrew nation of Israel, um, they're they're God's chosen people. Uh, He made a covenant with them. He would be their God, they would be his people. He would bless them. They would obey him and follow him. He would protect them. They would wholeheartedly serve him. He would provide for them. He would deliver them. And throughout their their history, there's this cycle, right? They're devoted to him. They're serving him. But then they make some compromises. And I'm sure they started off as little tiny compromises. Maybe they didn't even feel like compromises at first. They were often influenced by the culture around them, whether they knew it or not. And then they would bring in pagan idols, and they would see like their, their Canaanite neighbor and their worship practices, and they would think, I'm, I'm going to try and worship Yahweh just like my neighbor. But it never worked out. It always drew them away from the worship of Yahweh. God would let them choose this though. He'd let them choose their sin. He'd let them choose the ways of the world. He'd give give them over to those things and they would suffer the judgments of being unfaithful to him. And then eventually they would cry out. They would realize that what they're doing isn't working, that they needed the Lord and he would provide. He'd send someone. Someone would, 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 would give the word of God and call them to repentance, call them to turn away from what they were doing and turn to him, and they would abandon their idols. They would abandon their sin, and they would return to the Lord, and the relationship would be restored. And again, they were under God's blessing, and this just happened over and over again, this cycle. And it's incredible that God remains faithful to such an unfaithful people. I was struck by that this week. I was thinking about a friendship that I had um, for a long time, and um, and and it, uh, this guy, we would be on good terms, and then I would say something or or not answer a call or something, and I would offend him, and um, and he'd shut me off, and we'd be done. And I, I'd think, man, it's over. I'd reach out, try to try to reconcile, just nothing. And then months later, I'd hear from him as if nothing happened, or sometimes he would apologize. And, and okay, let's reconcile. And, and our friendship was restored again. But then months or years down the road, again, some offense, and, and he'd walk away. And over and over again, like, uh, he'd break off our friendship. And, and it got to the point after I mean, more than a decade of this, I remember praying one time, Lord, I don't miss him. I don't really want to have to forgive him. 
And I remember just being struck by, man, how is God so faithful to us? When we are so unfaithful to him, how does God remain faithful? Well, God had saved Israel from enemy after enemy. He delivered them. He delivered them. We remember from, from the slavery to the Egyptians, he delivered them. He'd given them decisive victory after, or over nations that were, um, that were far superior to them. But they always seemed to be just a short time away from a, from a wandering eye and then a heart that would follow. Well, all week as, as I've been in uh, chapters four, we're actually going through seven, but I wanted, to, I wanted to hold something back so I didn't let them read all the way through seven. Um, but all week I, I've been reminded of Hannah's song in verse two of chapter two, where she says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there's no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. And I think as we go, you'll see why why I've been thinking about that. So right off the bat in chapter four, Israel goes into battle with the Philistines and we don't get many details on the war itself, but they're defeated. Uh, It's not even close. They lose 4,000 men that day. And verse two reads that, that Israel was defeated before the Philistines, which is a peculiar way to say that. But it's because it wasn't the Philistines really that had defeated them. It was the Lord that had defeated Israel. It was his judgment on them. For, for the sins of their priests, for the sins of Israel, whose heart was far from the Lord. God gave them over to what they wanted, which was not him. Verse 3, when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They, they got it. And they said, why? Why has this happened to us? We are God's people. This should not happen. The verse continues, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So, so if this was a movie, we'd, we'd be panned way out. And here comes the ark, right, in, in all its glory. And as the camera zooms in, you see the people that are carrying it. And, and your gut just drops because you realize it's Hophni and Phinehas, right? The, the two wicked priests that we read about last week. And instantly, you know, this is not good. This isn't going to work. Samuel, God's prophet, had, had said in, in our passage last week that it was the Lord's will that these two die for their wickedness and that they were going to die on the same day. You might notice when the ark is described there, uh, the word covenant is in the title of the ark. And, and later, in the later chapters, that will be dropped. Um, he'll just call it the ark of God or the Ark of the Lord, but here there's an acknowledgement of the covenant. And when they, when they call for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, it, it seems kind of like they, they just want this genie in a bottle to help them win this war. Um, but, but I also think there's some misguided clinging to the covenant that God made with Israel. I think they're banking on the presence of the Ark, evoking God's promise to deliver the, his people, but they've neglected their end of the covenant. They're not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. Verse 5, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Right? This happens like at sporting events. It could happen in one of the playoff games today when, when some amazing play happens for the home team. The crowd erupts in cheering, so much so that there's measurable seismic activity. Israel 
Israel is confident in the power of God. They're banking on the power of God to defeat their enemies for them. And they're right to believe that God has that power, that God can defeat any enemy that opposes him, and he will. Verse 6, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. They said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. The Philistines are shaking in their boots. Or to some degree, they understood the power that they were facing was great. They had heard about God's power in freeing Israel from Egypt, the mighty Egypt. However, they did not fully understand the greatness of Yahweh. And we see that in this next verse. They say, take courage, men, or take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. These might be some of the dumbest words ever spoken. If you find yourself staring down God, the answer is not take courage and man up, okay? In any situation like this, where a bunch of generally dudes gather together and say, be men and fight, we can do this. We judge whether they're, whether they're brave or whether they're idiots based on the outcome. But in this situation, that actually doesn't work. The Philistines will win, but it's not because they were brave. They were stupid. But the Lord was at work here. And the author will give us a behind-the-scene view in the next chapters. But Israel's defeated. The, the previous defeat that I mentioned earlier, they lost 4,000 men. This time it was 30,000. And then verse 11, And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Just like the Lord said. Just like he promised. Well, Eli is sitting at the gate. He, he's waiting to hear news of the battle and a guy from the tribe of Benjamin runs from the battlefield, all disheveled, his clothes are torn up, he's got dust on his head. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting by his seat, uh, on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, and Eli, he, he can't see, he asks, what happened? And the man comes over to him, Verse 17, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there also has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over and he died. Well, Phinehas' wife was really, really pregnant when she hears uh, about the defeat, when she hears about the death of her husband, her brother-in-law, her father-in-law, she goes into labor, and she's going to die shortly after giving labor. And the women are trying to comfort her and saying, you have a son, you have a boy, he's healthy, and she just ignores them. She names him Ichabod, and, and she just keeps repeating, the ark of the Lord has been captured. The ark of the Lord has been captured, and then she dies. Ichabod's, the name means, where's the glory? 
And she's right to ask that the glory is, is no longer with Israel. The author jumps us over in chapter five to the Philistines. And, and uh, one thing that apparently would happen is when an army would go and, and fight another army and defeat them, they'd plunder the city. And as they're doing that, they'd go in and they'd, they'd take the gods that they worship too, right? And they'd take those gods, they'd bring them back to their own temple and they'd, they'd put them with their gods. And, and there are probably two things going on here. One, they were fearful. They were fearful of the power that these gods had, but they're also saying, my God's tougher than your God, right? And, and they'd, they'd put the God in their temple. So they did that in the temple of Dagon. And they go to bed and get up the next morning. They stroll into the temple only to find that Dagon has fallen flat on his face before the ark of the Lord. And as a reader, as a hearer, you're kind of like, yeah, take that Dagon. And they set him back up to make sure he isn't wobbly. Go about their day. Next morning, Dagon's fallen again before the ark of Yahweh, his head and his hands are broken off. Right? Think about this image. The, the head of Dagon is broken off. He can't think, he can't speak. His hands are busted off. He, he can't do anything, he can't act, he has no power. And you can almost see the smile on the author's face as he's penning these words of the image of Dagon broken before the Lord the Philistines, they've got to realize that something's going on here. Now remember that the hands of Dagon are broken off. And then this is, this is what we hear in verse six of chapter five. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashton. Dagon, Dagon's hands can't do anything, but the hand of Yahweh was heavy on the people of Ashdod. Dagon was powerless. Yahweh's power is unrivaled. The verse goes on, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Ashdod wants the ark out of the city. So the five lords, the five kings of the Philistines, one for every major city, they get together. They, they have emergency meeting number one to game plan, and they decide to send it to the city of Gath, which is, is strange because the king of Gath is sitting right there. And I don't know if he arrogantly thought like, hey, we can handle this, or if he's the low man among the kings, we don't know. But we do find out that the hand of the Lord was heavy now upon Gath. Men, young and old, break out into tumors. They want the ark out of Gath. They send it on to Ekron. Verse 10, as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people cried out, they have brought, the, uh, they brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. It doesn't even sound like anything's happened yet, and they're terrified. But quickly we find out that, that stuff is happening. Verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So now it's emergency meeting number two. They want this thing gone. 
And maybe you ask like, well, why, why'd you send it around to your own city? Why don't you just get rid of the thing in the first place? I don't know. Maybe, maybe they were afraid of the, this power getting into the hand of their enemies. Maybe they thought that they could actually contain the power of Yahweh and use it for themselves. But now it's clear they want it gone. So they call their priests, right? Not the priests of Yahweh, but their priests. And they say, what do we do? How do we get rid of this thing? The priests say, well, you, you, you need to, you need to send it away with a guilt offering. All right, they, they understood on some level that they stood guilty before the God of Israel. Well, what offering? This is where it gets funny. I'm guessing the author's laughing as he writes this in disbelief that, that the, the priest said, well, he gave you tumors. Let's make him some golden tumors. And mice have ravaged your land. Let's, let's make golden mice, right? Like, as you read this, you should know that's weird, okay? Like, if, if you get some sickness, you don't make a gold thing that looks like it to the Lord, okay? But this is what they did. I just imagine the goldsmith, like, commissioned to make these tumors and mice scratching his head. Verse 6, why should you harden your hearts? This is the, the priest speaking to the leaders of the Philistines. Why should you harden your hearts as, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Maybe you remember Moses is sent to Pharaoh to, to let the people go, to let the people of Yahweh worship. Yahweh and Pharaoh says, no way. I don't know you. I don't know your God. So God sends a plague, and Pharaoh's like, okay, okay, I give, I give. Uh, I'll let them go. Just stop the plague, and the plague stops. But then Pharaoh changes his mind. He hardens his heart, so another plague comes. Same thing happens over and over and over again until finally Pharaoh's like, okay, I give. You can go. And as the people are leaving, the Egyptians are they're throwing, they're giving Israel their gold and their silver. Israel Israel plundered their slave masters without even doing anything. It was the Lord that did it. And now, as the ark is about to leave, there's a plundering that's happening as the Philistines are giving their gold. So they come up with this plan. They take a cart with, with two cows that have, that have never been yoked before, right? They, they've never done this thing where they're supposed to walk together, work together. And these cows, are uh, they're still nursing their calves. They lock up the calves. They put the ark, they put the golden tumors, the golden mice on there. And, and they say, all right, if this, if this goes straight to Israel's city, we know that it was the hand of the Lord that was upon us. But if it doesn't, and it shouldn't have worked, they should have wanted to find their calves, right? They, they shouldn't have been able to go. But if it does work, it, it's the Lord. If it doesn't, we know it's a coincidence. Well, they send it off and they watch. And sure enough, the cows go straight there like they're on, like they're on an expressway to this city of Israel, almost like the hand of God that was heavy upon the Philistines was now the hand leading these cows. And it had been with the Philistines for seven months, and now it was coming to Israel. And Israel had no idea. They had no clue what was going on. And I don't, I don't have time to make a major point here. In Israel's history, this is a low, low point, right? That they've lost the ark of the Lord. They lost their hope. And yet, God, this whole seven months, was at work, even though they didn't know what was going on. And it's easy for us in really hard circumstances in life, whether the circumstances we bring on ourselves or, or, or stuff that just happens in life, because life is hard, it's easy for us to feel hopeless, feel like the Lord isn't there. 
to wonder if he even cares, to wonder why he isn't working, when in reality, so often we have no idea the work that God is doing. So for seven months, Israel didn't know. They didn't know about the mighty displays of God's power. They had no idea about Dagon falling and his head getting chopped off, losing his hands. They didn't know about the tumors. They didn't know about the mice. But the ark of the Lord was making its way back to them because of the Lord. So the cart ends up in Beth Shemesh. The people were going about their day, no clue that this ark was going to come. They're, they're working in the fields, and no doubt they heard the lowing of the cows probably before they even saw it. Maybe they wondered, like, I wonder, wonder who lost their cows. And then the, the lowing gets closer and closer, and off in the distance they can see that they're not just cows by themselves, but they're pulling something. And, and then they, they wonder, like, is that is that the ark? And as it gets closer and closer, sure enough, and word spreads and the people are in a frenzy. They're so excited. The Levites, they, they split up the wood from the cart. They, they make an offering out of these cows to the Lord. And there's great joy that the ark is back, but it's quickly squelched. We're not given the details, but 70 Israelites were struck dead for looking at the ark in some improper way. And there's all kinds of ideas what, what they did wrong. But the author doesn't tell us. What is clear here, though, is there's an indication of God's power, that God is, is not like anyone. So the excitement that they once felt is, is gone now. Verse 20, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he, uh, shall he go up away from us? Who is able to stand before the Lord? That's the question. Who can stand before this holy God? They recognize in that moment how different God is from them. There's nothing that compares to God. There's no one that compares. No person by their own merit can approach the Lord. No one's good enough. And they see his power. They see his righteous judgment. And it stops them in their tracks. And in that moment, it is clear how truly awesome God is, how powerful God is, how dangerous God is. We're often confused, like when we read in Scripture, uh, when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that's often a head-scratcher to us. We, we don't get it sometimes. They were not confused. We make God small in our eyes. We like to box him up. It's hard for us to fear the Lord like the Bible speaks of. We often lack reverence for the Lord. But if we had been there that day to see these 70 men die, we too would have been stopped in our tracks. I'm sure some of them thought, man, like, I know that guy. Man, I get no one's perfect, but that's a pretty good guy. If he can't stand before the Lord, who can Who's able to stand? Verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirath saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. It, it seems like they don't even tell them what just happened about the 70 guys dying. They park the ark uh, of the covenant uh, at Abinadab's house. They, they, uh, they consecrate a guy to be over the ark, and it sits there for 20 years. In verse 2, chapter 7, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Man, they were sad. They were depressed. But we find out that they still, they still haven't given up their foreign gods. 
Then Samuel, we finally hear from him. Last time we heard from him was verse 1 of chapter 4, now 7, 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, so, so the word of the Lord is coming here. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals, put away the Ashroth, and they serve the Lord only. Samuel calls Israel to repentance. He says, get rid of these foreign gods. Get rid of them. Put them away and return to Yahweh. Israel had wanted God to be their deliverer. They wanted the part of the covenant where, where he saved them, but they didn't want the part where he was their Lord and they served him alone. And we treat Jesus like this. We're all for Jesus being our Savior and giving us grace and mercy but sometimes we don't want him to be Lord of our life. We don't want to be wholly devoted to him. Samuel says, return to the Lord with all your heart. Put away these foreign gods. And sin is so good at gripping us, at holding on to us. It tricks us into confessing most of what we've done, but still keeping a little bit for ourselves, still keeping a secret. We're easily tricked into trying to hold back just a little bit for ourselves. Samuel says, put away the foreign gods. Put away the idols. I get it. We don't have carved images that we worship. Our foreign gods, our fake gods, are way more sophisticated than that. Maybe it's power and success. Maybe it's our physique. Maybe it's the appearance of having it all together, like you have this perfect family. Maybe it's, maybe it's health and wealth. A good thing, health and well-being, actually is what I meant, not health and wealth. Health and well-being, which, which is a fine thing, but we've elevated it. We, we, we worship that now in our society. Whatever the sin is, put it away. Right? Whether it's arrogance or money or, or, or being a, a busybody gossip or, or sexual gratification, deceit, addictions, whatever it is, we're called to put these things away and give ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. We're not powerful enough to hold on to a little bit of sin. We need Christ. Jesus died for our sins so that we don't have to remain dead in sin. Jesus is the only one who's ever defeated sin. Every other person is winless against sin. Even so-called little sins are mightier than you. They're mightier than me. It's amazing how hard it is for us to completely walk away from sin. Our, our draw to sin, if you know Christ, it isn't even logical. Because right? your eyes have been opened. You see that nothing compares to Jesus. That, that there's no sin that is as good as knowing the Lord. And yet it's hard for us to completely tear away from sin. Samuel calls him, put away your foreign gods. Serve the Lord wholeheartedly, not holding anything back. Imagine skydiving. I've never been skydiving. You could put your money on me probably never going skydiving. Um, but from what I understand, you have to jump out of the plane, right, to do it well, okay? If you kind of hold on to that door and jump, that's not going to go well. And similarly, similarly, Samuel's saying, no, you got to get rid of everything. You got to be all in with the Lord so I wonder today, what foreign gods are you holding on to? 
What idols do you need to put away? What sin do you need to confess? What's keeping you from wholeheartedly returning to the Lord? And, and maybe, maybe you came to the Lord decades ago. It doesn't mean that you don't need to let go today of the things that have crept in. It's a, it's a daily assessment. Lord, what am I holding on to that's not of you? What, what is becoming worship in my life that's not worship of you? Like Israel, we're being discipled by the culture around us more than we know it. It's subtle. It, it's sneaky. Sometimes it's, it's nearly undetectable until a lot of time has passed. And then we, we look at ourselves and we, we ask, like, how did my heart get so far from the Lord? But God's good, and he's given us his word, right? The word became flesh. Christ is calling us to serve him and him alone, and he'll be your deliverer. Now, does that mean that he's going to uh, completely restore the messed up situation that you found yourself in? Well, he's certainly powerful enough to. He might, he might not, but he will deliver you from sin's ultimate consequence of eternal judgment if you trust in Christ as your Savior alone. So Israel returns to the Lord. They gather together. They have Samuel pray for them. He's, he's a prophet. He's their priest. He's the one who mediates between them and God, and they needed that. They needed someone to represent God to them and them to God. They needed someone who would intercede on their behalf. So Samuel prays, and we're no different. right? We need a mediator. We need, we need someone to intercede, and, and I hope that you have people in your life that are doing that for you but we need Jesus to intercede for us. And thank God he does. Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, he defeated death. Who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. That's what Christ does for you as sin comes at you and tempts you and pulls you. You have an intercessor who died for you. Your right, his righteousnesses have been given to you. Verse six, so they gathered at Mizpah. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord. They fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord, right? They're, they're not going through the motions here when they pour this water out to God or fast to him. They are truly confessing we have sinned. And it says, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Right, he, he judged them, which not like a courtroom, but he, the judging is calling them to devotion to the Lord, reminding them of who they need, of who God is and who they are. Well, the sneaky Philistines, they heard they're all gathered there and they've been tormenting them probably this, this whole 20 years. They decide they're going to go attack them, and Israel finds out, and they're, they're, they're freaked out. Verse 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel, or as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew back or drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel, and the men of Israel went out from Mespah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. I love it. The Lord thundered. 
all week I've had the ACDC song Thunderstruck like in my head right there, which if you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Um, but, but it takes me back to actually Hannah's words in her song, verse 10. Listen to this. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. That's exactly what the Lord did. The victory was decisive and it wasn't because of Israel. We remember the phrasing before when they were defeated before the Philistines. Well, now it says they were defeated, the Philistines, before Israel. This is the Lord's victory for Israel. Well, then, uh, then the Philistines were subdued, and, and the end of the chapter tells us that, uh, that Samuel continued to judge Israel. And Israel responded to, to him. But, but I want to take us to verse 12, and we'll end here. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So he, he sets up this stone, right, to help them remember to help them remember what the Lord has done. The Lord has helped us here. And he says, till now the Lord has helped us. And there's a couple ways that we can take that. This could be like a, a physical location, right? Like up till now, this place, the Lord helped us. We're going to remember that, that the Lord helped us here. Or it could be that, that up till now, up until this time, the Lord has helped us. And I think either one, it kind of asks a question without asking a question, but what will happen in the future, Israel? We know that the Lord will remain faithful, but Israel, what will you do? Israel, will you go back to your foreign gods? Will you continue this cycle that's been throughout your history, or will you finally trust in Yahweh? Will you fully devote yourselves to the Lord, wholeheartedly serving him and him alone, not letting the influence of the other nations infiltrate your worship of Yahweh. So harvest, will you continue to give yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord? Will you listen to the Lord? Will you obey the Lord and follow him wholeheartedly? Will you listen to his word, trusting him as your deliverer and Lord, or will or will we pursue sin and by our actions ask God to give us over to this world to be dominated by its ways? There is no reason for that. There is no reason for us to do anything but trust in Jesus. The word has come in the flesh to us, that has died for us, so that we can be forgiven of everything, so that we can be made right with him, so that we can be his people and he can be our God. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these accounts of, of Israel and the foolishness that we see in Israel. Lord, the, the hard, hard lessons that they learned in walking away from you, Lord. And our, my hope is, Jesus, that we will look to you, that we will trust in you and you alone. God, if there's sin that, that we need, to confess to you today, to, to put away from us like they put away the foreign gods, Lord, would, you, would you not let us ignore that? God, would you help us to confess that to you, to confess that to a, a brother or sister in Christ as well? 
Jesus, we want to be your people. We want to live for you wholeheartedly. It's in your name we pray. Amen.